All praises belongs to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. We praise Him and we seek His assistance and guidance and we seek refuge in Allah from the evil of ourselves and the adverse consequences of our deeds. Whomsoever Allah guides, none can misguide. And whomsoever Allah misguides, none can guide. And peace and salutations be upon the final messenger, our beloved prophet and master and leader and teacher, Muhammad ibn Abdullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. I bear witness that there's no one worthy of worship besides one Allah and that Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam is his messenger. Brothers and sisters in Islam, Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Taqabbal Allah minna wa minkum salih al-a'mal. May Allah accept our deeds and welcome to our third lesson um, in this uh, Umrah series with uh, Tazkiyah tours uh, upon the theme, Blast from the Past, Sira in the 21st Century. Um, today, as was announced, the ziyara of Mecca was delayed till tomorrow to facilitate an opportunity for us to uh, perform Salatul Istisqa which is the rain prayer uh, in the Haram um, many of you if not all of you uh, live in the UK and it's uh, rains uh, mashallah all year round so I don't know if anyone has ever practiced Salatul Istisqa ever before and uh, if it is your first then what a place to uh, observe it in and um, one of the questions that I received was um, some uh, of our uh, people taking note of uh, how people started turning their clothing inside out uh, at one point during the Imam's khutbah before they stood up to make dua. Uh, so uh, the Arabs wear the scarf, they were flipping their scarves. Those who have the taqiyah, they were flipping the taqiyah inside out. Uh, those who had jackets, they were flipping them inside out wearing the jackets. With the out, with the in part outside and the out uh, and the out part inside, so uh, why was this happening? Well, basically, it's from the Sunnah of the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam that he would turn his upper garment over and then make du'a to Allah subhanahu wa taala uh, to denote a change in circumstance, um, as if a new page has been turned. Because uh, one of uh, the things the Imam said constantly during the khutbah was that, and this is from the teachings in the Quran and Sunnah, that the reason why rain is withheld is because of sins. Uh, now another question that popped up is, if that's the case, then how come where we come from, it's always raining? And, um, uh, you know, uh, perhaps the situation there is a bit more dire than the situation in this land. Uh, and the answer to that question um, is that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala he tests our iman with blessings as well that sometimes Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gives a blessing uh, to a people that are not upon the haqq to test your iman uh, with that which you believe to be the haqq right and this happens it can happen with financial standing it can happen with material well-being it can happen with children it can happen with rainfall and so on and so forth and no doubt, uh, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, He creates and He gives precedence to part of His creation over others and no one has a say in the matter. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, He decrees and He decides. But there's an ultimate wisdom that we will never understand. Um, and as uh, is beautifully said, whatever we go through in life, we just have a pixel to the entire picture. The entire picture is with Allah. And if you are haste in making judgment based on the pixel, then 
10 times out of 10, you're going to get the answer wrong. If I gave you a pixel and said, tell me the picture that this pixel is from, 10 times out of 10, you'll get it wrong. But if I give you a few more pixels, now you'll start seeing uh, the, 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 a truer meaning to the initial original uh, pixel that you had. So this is a little bit about the istisqa. In terms of uh, our third lesson today, then uh, day one, we spoke about... Um, uh, we spoke about Mecca as a land uh, uh, before the da'wah of our beloved Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam with correlation to Ibrahim alayhi salam and his son Ismail alayhi salam and Hajar and how they were left here and uh, we have the well of Zamzam and the Sa'i and we all know this is all, you know the Umrah and the Hajj really in, in, in a big part is a depiction of the life of Ibrahim alayhi salam and his family the Sa'i is the running of Hajar right uh, and even in the Sa'id, there's a place where you have to hasten between the two green lights as we know it now. It was a valley in a valley then. Uh, and she would hasten because when she went into that part, she couldn't see her son who she left, uh, who was in distress, which caused her to be in distress because they ran out of provisions and she had no more um, uh, provisions to feed uh, her son. So we depict that this is the running of Hajar and her desperation. Then we have the tawaf. We know that the tawaf is uh, the Kaaba was built by Ibrahim and Ismail, and Allah told uh, Ibrahim to make the announcement. And when you come for Hajj, you have the pelting of the Jamarat, you have uh, Arafah, you have uh, Muzdalifa, uh, you have Mina, and all this has a relationship to uh, Ibrahim alayhi salam. Uh, and perhaps if Allah blesses us to come together for Hajj, then I can tell you about that, um, inshaAllah. That was the first lesson. The second lesson was about the incident of the elephant and we took lessons from that as we did from day one in terms of how we can benefit in the 21st century uh, that we experience life in today. Today I want to talk to you about um, the early years of the Prophet wasallam and the fact that one of the practices of the Quraysh was to send their children to the countryside. They would send the young, uh, the newborns to the countryside uh, to, uh, to, to, to experience the initial years of their life. And obviously this didn't entail, uh, or it wasn't feasible for all intents and purposes, it didn't entail the parents migrating to the countryside. So basically this had to happen um, based on the presence of a carer. And um, I think we have basic history with us. We know that the carer that Allah chose for the Prophet wasallam was Halima, radiallahu uh, anha, uh, and uh, Halima, uh, she uh, took care of the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam and uh, was a part of him being nurtured uh, in the early years of the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam away from his parents. Now you can imagine how uh, important this reality is, right? That you're giving up your child so early on to somebody. So. This should teach you really how important the carer is because the carer really now is, uh, you know, we're not going to say uh, assuming motherhood, but uh, practically assuming motherhood. You cannot outsource parenting, right? You cannot outsource it. But uh, practically, uh, this is what Halima was doing. Now, the question is, why did the Arabs do this? This is what we want to focus on. Why was it a practice of the Quraysh to send these children out to the country? Yes, okay, the countryside was different to Mecca, but what are the underlying factors? And the fact that this was a common practice of uh, the Arabs, as explained by the scholars, was for several reasons from them, uh, because of the cleaner environment that the countryside provided, which Mecca didn't provide. 
And that's why I highlighted to you earlier that Mecca was a valley. It's a valley. Uh, the countryside uh, is more spaced out. So it has a purer environment than the environment of the valleys. This is uh, number one. So we, meaning the bacteria that would exist in Mecca. And, and we must remember, they didn't have hospitals. and they, they didn't have medicine. They didn't have antibiotics. They didn't have all these things. These, this, this was natural human process. That this is how they understood people getting ill. So they knew that at the early years of the child's life, when the immune system is still developing, the immune system is... Uh, this, they understood it through common sense, through, through uh, pondering. And they found that this was uh, the most conducive um, uh, practice, right? Somebody might say, still, even if, you know, you can't outsource parenting, but somebody practically assuming motherhood and fatherhood over your child, why would you, I mean, on, on what grounds would you make this decision? Well, if the benefits outweigh the, uh, the harms, right? Uh, the, the, the harms are, yes, the child is being experiencing the most impressionable years of their life outside of your home. Uh, however, you can mitigate that by trying to find uh, the most precise carer, right? That carries the values that your home carries. But what are the, the, the harms of not going ahead with it? Well, there's bacteria, there's bacterial disease, maybe I'll lose the child in infancy, there's no hospital. There, there was not, this concept didn't exist. So they, it, it was a general feeling that the pros outweighed the cons if you mitigated the cons by looking at the family that you placed your child in. And that's why they were picky, right? Uh, the carers were picky with the children that they took and vice versa. So this was one of the reasons, right, that they, would, they, they made this decision to send uh, their, their, their families out. Another um, important reason that might be overlooked is the development of their language ability. And this is how the Quraysh valued the Arabic language. They valued it. The Arabic language was, was their pride, Right? This was their pride. This was, this is what they had. The the, the poets were seen as, uh, as 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 the celebrities, uh, of 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 the, of the, of the, of the tribe, right? Because they were the lettered people, and the, it was a norm for people to be unlettered. It's not a criticism that we're not putting them down by saying they were unlettered. Like sometimes when it's explained that the Prophet sallallahu was unlettered, some people take offense and say, why are, you, why are you putting the Prophet sallallahu down? Because in today's day and age, if somebody can't read a night, we look down on him. Say, no, it's a different time, different space. Right? Understand it in that paradigm. In that paradigm, it was different. And that's why Allah didn't reveal a, written, a, a, a book that was read through reading. Allah reveal, revealed a book that was recited to the Prophet sallallahu and he recited it to his companions and it came to us through recitation over centuries. It wasn't a book that came down from the skies. And that is why the argument of the enemies of Islam and the enemies of the Quran and the Orientalists and those that follow their methodology to try and bring Islam down. They come to our children, they come to us and they say, but how do you know the Quran is from Allah when the Quran was only uh, completed in book form after the death of the Prophet Right? That we've got the oldest dated Qur'an, it goes back to this caliph. What about the Qur'an that goes back to the Prophet And the answer to that is, this is a, this is a non-argument. This is a non-issue. Because it doesn't matter when the Qur'an was written. The Qur'an came down red, everyone was reading it. The written aspect of it is a secondary matter in terms of the preservation of the Qur'an. Originally the Qur'an is preserved in the hearts of men and women. <laughs> and it was preserved across generations this way. And we know people who can't read and write today, they're huffath. People who are blind, they're huffath. This is how the Qur'an came down. Jibreel came and recited to the Prophet ﷺ. He heard the recitation. And then he recited to the Sahaba. And they heard the recitation. 
So the context, the concept of the alphabet and how the alphabet came to be and the Uthmani script and, and all this, this is, this is a discussion aside of the, how the Quran is originally preserved. So you can, you can shoot bullets, you can shoot missiles, you can shoot rockets, you can shoot bombs, nuclear bombs, whatever you want. At the fact that the Quran was written after the death of the Prophet it doesn't change the reality that this is the unchanged word of Allah got no bearing on it. That's, that's another discussion and our evidence for it being the unchanged word of Allah is another discussion. If you want to challenge the, 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 the nature of the Quran, challenge the recited aspect of it, which they can't. So they were very proud of the Arabic language. So why do we preserve the Arabic language by sending the children out? Well, because Mecca, as we said in yesterday's discussion, it was the place to be. Uh, people from different walks of life would gather. Trade would happen. People from different cultures, different, the, the, the Arabic language uh, had dialects, had different ways uh, of, of uh, there were different words with different tribes that didn't exist with other tribes. The Quraysh wanted to preserve the Qurashi Arabic and that's why he said the Quran came down in the Arabic language spoken by the Quraysh. And so famously Uthman radiallahu anh said that if there's a difference of opinion, uh, when he compiled the Quran at his time uh, with his font, uh, what did he say? He said, "If there's a difference of opinion, we will use uh, the, the, the under, we will use the word as understood by the by the Quraysh." You guys paying attention? Maybe they all want coffee and tea. I don't know. So, it's a day and age today that whenever someone walks out, scratches his head, does people all look at what's going on? It's very interesting, right? Um, so uh, bear with me. Pay attention here. So the the, the the Quraysh had their own way of speaking the language. They had their own words. And sometimes they would hear words used by other uh, tribes that they wouldn't understand except through context. That aside, there were different ways of pronouncing the words. Right? Uh, for example, and we, 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 we study this when we study the tajweed of the Quran or the different qira'ah, you have the imala, imala kubra, imala sughra, wadduha, wadduhe. Different Arab, they spoke it like this. this. This is how the Arabic language is being spoken with different tribes. And that's why Allah revealed the Qur'an in seven ways to facilitate the other tribes reading it. Because they were old people, their whole lives they said, Now how can we say, what? it would be difficult for them to read the Qur'an, so they won't read the Qur'an. And the difference between the Qur'an and the other scriptures is the Qur'an is the only book that was revealed in which the people were told to read it. The other books were read by the prophets and the sages, the priests and the rabbis, and they taught the people what the book said. But they weren't commanded to read it like we have been commanded to read it. That we are rewarded for every letter, ten rewards. So we build Jannah through it. Now imagine the, 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 the elderly person or the young person who doesn't have the jaw movement because they're not there yet and they're only used to this environment of pronouncing words in a certain way. How are they going to do? It's going to be extra difficult. And there were many more than seven dialects. Right? And that's why the Prophet ﷺ said it only came down in seven, which means for some people they would have to go through the struggle because if the Quran catered for their dialects it might have led to a change in the meaning. So the Quran stuck to dialects that didn't affect the meaning. And that is why the Prophet ﷺ he said whoever reads the Quran with difficulty they get double the reward. Because you're making an effort. Right? You have that stutter because it's not your natural... Uh, you know, way of pronouncing things, but you, you're coming to it. So the point is the Quraysh had their way. They wanted to protect that way. They had Arabs coming from different tribes into Mecca, popping in, popping out, coming for Umrah, coming for Hajj, right? So basically, if the kids playing in the streets of Mecca, they're absorbing different words, what's going to happen to their, their identity? 
What's going to happen to their language? They saw their language as the identity. That's number one. Number two, the character as well they wanted to protect. They wanted the character of the Quraysh to be protected and ingrained in these people. So that identity would remain. Why? Because different people come with different character. Tradesmen, they have a character of trade. They might be lying about the cost price. They might be refusing to cancel a sale when the other person asks of it. And then an argument breaks out. The little kids are kicking their ball or whatever you can imagine happening at that time. And they're listening to this, right? So this kind of adab, they will, children learn through their eyes, through their ears. As Allah says, Allah extracted you from the wombs of your mothers whilst you knew nothing. But then He gave you ears uh, and eyes and hearts so that you, that's how you learn. So the, the, the ch- children, they don't learn through instruction when they're born. They watch and see, they, they, they absorb what they see, what they hear, right? So this is, this is what would happen. So the Quraysh, for all intents and purposes, they said this, the, the cons of uh, keeping them were greater than the positives of sending them. And this became um, the norm. Now, um, the Prophet sallallahu was blessed in and of himself. And we know that Halima radiallahu anha, she was only left with him as a choice, but what a blessed uh, choice he was for her because she was going through her own difficulties financially. And when the Prophet sallallahu came into her home, there was barakah beyond barakah. She just... You know, little was more, more was even more, and even more was even more. This is what she saw. And she had this attachment to the Prophet wasallam, and she naturally saw in him abilities that she didn't find in other children that she spent her life uh, uh, bringing up as well. Alright, so we've started a bit late today because of the room logistics, so I'll just stick with this particular uh, part of the seerah and go into the lessons. Uh, so what lessons can we, can, can, can we take from this incident in terms of our lives today. Well, the first lesson that screams out at us is the lesson of prevention is better than cure. Clearly, right? Prevention is better than cure. The Quraysh did what they did to prevent. Why bring them up in Makkah? They learn bad words, then we have to fix it when they're older. They learn bad character, then we've got to fix it, right? It's far more expensive. It's far more resourceful. I mean, it's far more impactful on your resources in a negative way to correct a problem than preventing that problem in the first place. So prevention is better than cure. The Quraysh understood this. This was the reason why they would allow their children to go and be brought up by somebody for two, three years. Because prevention is better than cure. What if they stay here and learn bad language? What if they lose the language? What if they develop the wrong tongue? What if they come with bad character? Right? So uh, prevention is definitely better than cure. Al-wiqayatu ashaddu min al-ilaj as the Arabic language says, or afdalu min al-ilaj, that uh, prevention is more impressive than cure, or, or, or prevention is better than cure. Um, and we should apply this in our lives today, in all our uh, aspects, and if we look at the children aspect, then at least with uh, our, uh, how we bring up our children. Right? Um, in, for example, the, the madrasa we choose for them, for the Islamic learning. Right, uh, the environment, the children that they will be with, the friends that they are most likely to make. You got to be aware of this, right? Uh, if you give them access to social media uh, and these devices, these tablets, and so on and so forth, then educate them on how to use it correctly, and spend your time monitoring them at least at the early stage. In, in real life, we talk about handing things over. When there's change in leadership, there has to be a handover period. Why? Because that's efficiency. So now, if you are 
if you are handing, you transitioning their life, you need to be there in the, in, in the quote-unquote handover period, monitor them. Many parents say, but Sheikh, that shows that I don't trust my child. No. You trust your child. You trust your child. But, what happened? What did I miss? <laughs> we'll discuss that later. <laughs> you, 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 you trust your child. You trust your child, but you don't trust Shaytan. You trust your child, but you don't trust Shaytan. Some parents say, no, child is saying, you don't trust me. He goes, no, I'm teaching my child no trust. I said, no, tell your child I trust you, but I don't trust Shaytan. That's the reality. So that's why I'm checking you. That's why I'm monitoring who you're making friends with on Facebook, who you're chatting to. That's, that's prevention is better than cure. That's your job. Allah's going to ask you. And you have to understand, parents here, that we know, Abdullah, we know that um, from the major, from the, from the biggest of sins is disrespecting your parents. We know this, right? But do you know, on the day of Qiyamah, Ibn al-Qayyim, rahimahullah, he says, uh, and this is a, a deduction that is made from his understanding of the Sharia. He says that Allah on the day of Qiyamah will ask the child about how good the parent was before asking the parent about how dutiful the child was. Can you imagine? Can you imagine? That through deduction we will say that being a bad child is a major sin. But being a bad parent, how major is that? Right? Because at the end of the day you're responsible. You're responsible. If you do everything in your capacity and things didn't work out, that's different. But you have to ensure that you have put the processes in place. Uh, who comes from the corporate world here? Anyone in the corporate world? Well, we said that we talk about these KPIs, key performance indicators. Put them on yourself as parents. Put your own key KPIs in place. What you're doing for this quarter. Now, this is my yearly targets with my, with, with, in terms of being a father, right? This, I'm going to break it into quarters. I'm going to judge myself based on this. Go get your own board of directors, right? People who you go to for sure and people hold you accountable. Maybe get you off your own father, the child's grandfather. People who will constructively criticize you uh, and not hold back. They'll be your best friends, not your worst enemies. They'll call a spade a spade, not a big spoon. Right? We need people like that in our life. That's an African thing, by the way. Huh? Call a spade a spade, not a big spoon. Sometimes you take a big pick to spade, a spade, you know, the spade to someone. So what's this? He goes, a big spoon. It's not a big spoon, it's a spade. And today we need people like that. Today, unfortunately, very few people give nasiha. And the few people that do, they butter the nasiha. They butter the bread. So you don't see the crumb, you see butter on top. It's nice, slippery and shiny. They make you feel good for, the, for your uselessness. And that's, that's dangerous. Right? And then on the other hand, we get people who develop cognitive dissonance. And this is a psychological uh, 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 citation about people who make excuses to help them sleep better at night for their inability and incapabilities. And failures. It's cognitive dissonance. We shouldn't have that in our life. And then they normally give the example, or in the books of psychology, they give the example of the fox who wanted the apple on the tree and spent hours trying to jump. And the owl is watching the fox saying, This miski in shame. Huh? He's trying, jumping, all one hour he can't get the apple. Now he's hungry, that's why he's trying. But at the end, the fox just shrugs his shoulders, walks off, and goes, That apple doesn't taste nice, it must be rotten anyway. Yeah, he's making himself feel good that he failed to get the apple. So we need to be, be, be aware of this. So even as parents, you need to put those processes into place to make sure there's prevention because don't create a problem and look for cure. It's far, cures later on, it's far more damaging to uh, deal with situations at the cure stage. Right? You might get it with Allah's help, but it comes with a stress, it comes with a difficulty, it comes with 
uh, a cost, brothers and sisters in Islam. Right? It comes, it comes with a cost. So if you choose the institute, choose the right institute. Right? Choose the insti- uh, look at the friends, look at uh, the vision of the institute. Where are they going? Do their outcomes meet your outcomes? This is another thing. The Quraysh looked at the outcomes of the carers. They see who should be the carer of their child. They want to see if we have shared values. This is something we should pay attention to. Alright. Number two. Um, we learn from this the importance of having a robust tarbiyah methodology. Of, uh, uh, when, when bringing up our children and even bringing up our students or whoever is within your sphere of influence. And tarbiyah refers to uh, developing the individual. It's different to ta'aleem, which is educating the individual. And Islam uh, teaches us that tarbiyah comes before ta'aleem. Developing someone comes before educating them. Because developing them prepares them to receive the education. You can educate someone. Huh? You can educate him in quantum physics. But if he's going to start building, uh, or chemistry, if he's going to start building weapons of mass destruction with the knowledge that he has, we have a problem, right? It's the same, it's the same, it's, it's the same uh, knowledge, but you can use it in a positive way, you can use it in a negative way, you can use it in a destructive way, you can use it in a, in a way that breeds uh, excellence, right? So you've got to prepare. You've got to prepare the carrier of that knowledge. And as it is said, you can have the best biryani. I'll share the biryani example because of the crowd that we have in front of you. I think we all know biryani is uh, supposed to be a, a posh dish, right? But if you serve that biryani on the floor, who's going to eat it? You've got to serve it in the right dish as well. And all this gourmet eating, they talk about how you plate the food. Right? It could be cooked well with all the ingredients. It's not plated well, it doesn't look appetizing. People eat with their eyes. You serve the biryani on the floor, what's going to happen? So same thing with the, with, with the child, with the student, with those who are in your care. You've got to develop them. You've got to develop them to carry the knowledge so the knowledge is not served on the floor. Right? So the, this is what we learn from this. And in terms of the crowd that I see in front of me and some of the children that you have, allow them to feel the weight of responsibility. Right? Don't fear their failure. A lot of parents, they, the, the mother mothers the child, the father mothers the child. Everyone is mothering the child, smothering and mothering. Why? Because they mustn't make a mistake. No, this is the time to allow them to develop and make mistakes in front of you. Why? Because there's no one more desperate than you for their success. No one loves them more than you. If you pass away and now they're left to make mistakes, who's going to advise them as you could have or as you would have? Who's going to love them as you, as you love them? Nobody. Who, who is going to be as sincere as you for their success? Let's face it, there's no one more desperate for your child to get to Jannah besides you. No one more desperate besides you. The hips teacher, the Quran teacher, the school teacher, they feel, uh, they feel what they feel towards your child, but not as much as you. They've got their own children. It's physics. It's how it is, how Allah has created it. So allow them to feel the weight of responsibility. I'm not saying now give them the passports on the way home and say, right, keep the passports, count it. Then you'll lose the passport and say, Sheikh, you taught us some bad knowledge in the... No, allow them to feel the weight of responsibility in their capacity. Where if there's a mistake, it's not a disaster. And then you can teach them from that mistake. Right? We shouldn't fear making mistakes. It's through mistakes that the greatest inventions happen to be. The right brothers, I was telling them in Dubai when I gave this talk on... Uh, ways to bring barakah into your earnings uh, I spoke to them about the right brothers and these, these guys they were made, for four years they were failing for four years they failed before the flight took off right and today air travel 
is a darura. It's a darura. You need it, right? Because that's how the world is connected. So the point is, the greatest uh, inventions came from failures. Allow them to fail, but allow them to fail and learn from the failure. But don't set them up for failure, like giving them the passports when they're not ready for it. No, don't do that. Don't set them up for failure. As Allah says in the Quran, That test the orphans when they reach the age of puberty before giving the wealth back to them. Test them. Give them a bit of the money. See that they, uh, they, they are wise in their spending. When they're wise in their spending, then and they reach uh, the capacity of uh, being efficient in how they manage their financial affairs, give them the wealth. Why did Allah specify it like this? It's not enough for them just to be, now I'm an adult legally, give me my money. You are looking, it, looking after, it, after it for me based on the instructions of my parents or whoever. Now is my wealth. It is your wealth, but you're not ready to do tasarruf with it until you test it and pass the test. Why is Allah specifying this in the Quran? To teach us that we shouldn't set up anyone for failure. Set people up to succeed. If they fail after trying, learn from the failure and then let's try again. So take this, uh, this note. Uh, another thing we learn from these brothers and sisters in Islam is the importance of a stable environment in the lives of, uh, of, of people that we are responsible over. Because that's why the Quraysh sent their children out. It was a more stable environment in the countryside. It wasn't an influx of different people from different cultures coming in, popping out. Different. It was a stable environment. Stability, a system. And we need to create those environments with uh, uh, our children. We need to ensure that we create timetables that are stable in terms of their sleeping times, in terms of their learning times, in terms of their time for interaction, etc., etc., etc. Because all these things aid the development of their mind and also it allows... Um, it allows for the knowledge. It allows for, for their minds to consolidate their daily learnings, right? Allah's created us in a capacity where we have day and night, right? And the night plays a part in our development, as the day plays a part in our development. Shouldn't be that they sleep late nights, they sleep any time, etc., etc., etc. When I was growing up, we had we had bedtime curfews. Now I see this getting less and less with the new generation. I don't know what it is. Maybe because we were young and we didn't like the bedtime curfew. So khalas, yani, let's just now we in the position of uh, authority, let's just delete it from our, our children's life. Uh, there's wisdom in it. Stability leads to mighty progress. And don't forget these children, they would come back to Mecca. Mecca was a rugged terrain. It wasn't like the home, you know, that your children come back to after school, for example. Right? Mecca was Mecca. People were out and about. Nobody was watching over the child the whole day. No CCTV and mobile phones to contact them at the, at the push of a button and so on and so forth. And, and I'm su I suppose we can relate to that. When we were growing up, we would go with our bicycles. I don't know, in the UK and Africa, we're a bit more, uh, we had a bit more uh, freedom. It wasn't raining every time. We would go out, wallahi, we'd come back at night. And where did you go? How did it go? And the parents were normal. They went about their day to day. I'm trying to think if that was my child, I'll be, we'd be, we'd be calling the police and putting such uh, parties out for them. Uh, maybe stapling papers onto trees because he's, he's missing for an hour or two. Allah understand. So stable environments play a part. Right? Stable environments are important. Uh, the other lesson that we did, and subhanAllah, just from this, look how many lessons we're deducing for, for our own time. I mean, I'm not counting. I don't know if you are. But the next lesson we can take from this is the importance of protecting your children from seeing bad. Doesn't mean don't educate them about bad. But don't let them see it because seeing, as we said, they, they become what they see and hear. So protect them in the best of, to the best of your capacity from seeing bad. 
seeing evil, seeing character which is not conducive to them. And today we do this in our homes by making the television babysitters for them. That's what we do. Right? So perhaps this is even a more pertinent point. Because the Quraysh were sending them out so they didn't have to see tradesmen arguing. They didn't have to see uh, bad culture. They didn't have to see any evil uh, character. They didn't have to see drunk men, for example. They didn't have to see women being mistreated, for example. Right? Different people come from different places. It was nobody's business. They did what they did. No one got involved. So they didn't want their, ch- their children to see that. We shouldn't make our children uh, see things that they shouldn't be seeing. And today we do it with, with TV. And let me tell you, the cartoons are not that innocent. Probably a handful of them. But they're not. In the cartoons, there's, there's this plantation of things. Right? Like the other day, Abdullah was uh, asking, we were flying somewhere, and he goes, oh, they have this uh, cartoon. He goes, so can I watch this cartoon? I says, uh, no. He goes, it's just a cartoon. It's about dinosaurs. I said, yeah, but I think it has... Uh, it has. He goes, no, it doesn't have any bad things. I said, how do you know? I said, I think there's something there. I remember seeing it uh, the last time, and, I, and there was a part right at the beginning which I said, so I, I said this, uh, this is something you, you shouldn't watch. He goes, but I, I don't think so. I said, let me tell you. Do you remember there was that little animal that was bobbling around like he, was, that he didn't know what was going on? He drank something and he was walking around falling over himself. He goes, yeah, it was very funny. I said, that was a drunk animal. Right? As they're growing up, they find that funny. So it becomes, it, what do you think that's done to the character? Hasn't it in some way put a dent in their defense mechanism? Hasn't it in some way or form desensitized them to some bad habit? Right? We desensitize to a lot of things today. We see them and say, that's normal, that's how it is. We should protect them from that. We should not, uh, uh, we should not refrain from educating them that alcohol is haram and this is how drunk people... Educate them about it, but don't let them become, educate, don't let them become educated without them realizing that they're being educated and in the wrong way. So be perceptive. For me, this was a red flag. He didn't realize it at the time, but it stuck with me. Even though it's like two years later, I don't know. He was asking to see it, and I remembered it. Yes. Yes. You have a question? All right. So uh, watch out for the television. And let me tell you, the television has an agenda. Because everyone on it, they have a vision. Unfortunately, the people who watch it, they don't have a vision. They're just people of television. (laughs) You get people of vision and people of television, unfortunately. All right? So... And I, was, I came across this study that said, spoke about how advertising companies go about advertising product. That when they want to, let's say you have a cereal. We are recording, so let's not mention names because we don't want to be brand ambassadors for anyone. Let's say you have a cereal and it's for kids. So the company wants to market the cereal. So they go to an advertising agency. The advertising agency says, leave it with us. The advertising agency goes to a psychologist and says, this is the target audience. This is the product. What should we do? So now, the, 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 the psychologist will say, all right, what you need, you need to have an animal which is cool, like a tiger, for example, and you need to make it roundish uh, in shape, in image, because children feel more comfortable with round figures than square figures. That's what you see in the cartoons. The bad guys are very squarish. The good guys are roundish, right? And then you got to... Uh, put this budget together to use these particular channels well the psychologists they do their thing now it comes back to strategy they uh, study 
the report, and then they put together their strategy, and then they execute. And as they call it, KSE, huh? knowledge, strategy, execution, for you, for you corporate guys. Huh? KSE, knowledge, we got the knowledge, now strategize, what we're going to do? We're going to do this, we're going to have the tiger, he's going to be surfing there on a hard day, doing cool things, all the other animals are going to be, wow, and then he's going to come back to shore, sweating, and he's going to pick up his bowl of cereal, and he's going to put it in his mouth and say, this is what you need to be cool like me. Then what you need to do, you need to go to the, sh the supermarkets and you need to get them to put the product on the lower shelves because the kids when they're walking with the parents or they may be in the trolley on the chair, so this is the, right? And that's why now it's a, it's a thing, a shelf space, they charge you for it because the, the supermarkets became clever. They say, hey, this is, this is intellectual, a type of intellectual property here, right? We can make money from this. So put it over here and put the, uh, make sure on, on, on the branding, the packaging, you put this nice uh, tiger on it and then mashallah, you know, little Abdullah is walking in the shop with his parents and the parents are looking at all the important things that they need for the, for the home base on their list. And little Abdullah turns to his right and he sees his friend that he knows from where, from the TV that he's been watching. I don't know why, because his parents said whenever they were tired of him, he said, go watch TV, I'm busy. And this is what we do. So you are making your child a consumer and you didn't even know you were doing that. That's what happens. So protect them from seeing bad, period. Is it difficult in this day and age? Absolutely. But is it something we should give up on? Absolutely not. Alright? So this is the next lesson that we learn. Um, the last thing that I want to say, um, or the second last thing, and, and then we'll do the last thing inshallah, and, and because it's, it's heading for Salat al-Maghrib, very quickly. Uh, and this is a follow-on from some of the things we already said, that as parents be ready to make tough decisions. Yesterday we spoke about this deen, if you want to get to Jannah, get ready for some adversity, right? You got to, uh, Islam has things that require energy from you. As parents, make the decision as well, to be tough, right? Don't just do, make tough decisions because it's a status quo, like when you have to leave your child on the first day at nursery school and the child is crying. So I know it's tough for parents and they, they, they tell me, Sheikh, I've made tough decisions for my kid, I left them at nursery when they were crying. Huh? The, the, the mother says, I, the whole day I was crying at home, right? And then I went to pick up my child and he was smiling. But that period is tough. But I made the decision. Well, you made the decision because that's the norm. But there's other decisions which you have to make. Which are tough decisions. And everyone will tell you you're doing the wrong thing because it's not the norm. But you believe it to be the right thing. You've got to stand your ground respectfully. And I know, look, I'm introducing the idea. You've got to figure it out. Because sometimes it might be an in-law problem. Sometimes it might be a problem with your parents. They're old school, new school, whatever it is. They don't understand certain things. Maybe you want to homeschool. Parents say, what's this homeschooling? We just know we put you in school. There's how they're going to do the exams. How they go to university. They can't see it. So you get that pressure. Don't be disrespectful to anyone. But in your own way, do da'wah to that which you believe to be the haqq. If you believe that this is what I have to do, it's a tough decision I have to make, but this is, I feel through istikhara, through shura, with people in the know, that this is for the betterment and development of people within my sphere of influence, then be ready for whatever turbulence comes with it. Because making, making good decisions might entail enduring some toughness. That's part and parcel of it. Don't think for one second that uh, the mother of the Prophet wasallam just let him go without any feeling and without any... She was a mother. She, she, no doubt she, had, she, she felt what she felt. Absolutely. Right? Especially knowing that he, he was born an orphan. His father passed away before he was born. Right? But these are decisions you have to make for the right reason. So be ready for that. The last thing, brothers and sisters, in Islam is language. And there's so many studies on this issue of language. From the studies today is how language has an impact on your character. Wallahu alam. When I was reading this research and I was pondering, 
You know, because sometimes you see people who speak Urdu and they come across in a very... The Urdu language has this... Uh, I don't speak it, but I've been told has the softness whereby the, what the parent calls the son, the son calls the parent the same words, or the elders call the children... The, 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 the adults call the children in words that they would expect the children to call them or something like this. So it means the language has some form of character built in it. Same thing with the Arabic language. The Arabic language also has character built in it. Right? And civilization really through history has taught us that it, you know, whenever you want to defeat a civilization, start by damaging the language. And I think in our day and time, well, before, I, I, Wallahu alam, I don't know the exact dates, um, but some of you might remember the issue between Pakistan and East Bangladesh. For example, just throwing out an example. What caused that havoc? What happened when Pakistan interfered in the curriculum of those? It, before it was Pakistan. It wasn't a split, right? But when they interfered in the curriculum and decided to make Urdu, Urdu what happened? Then the university students came out and uh, campaigners came out and activists came out and all this problem came out. People, or people saw this as a threat to their civilization, to their culture, to, to a lot of things. They didn't just see it as, 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 as a policy change. They saw this as an attack on, a, on generations of their people. So understand this, brothers and sisters in Islam, how knowledge develops you. The English language, I don't know how much character it possesses, definitely does uh, have character, but, uh, you know, nurture your children to learn Arabic. I think we live in a day and age where everything is possible, especially with the Arabic language. There's online institute, on-site institutes. I'm sure back home in the UK, stone throw, you know, stone throw away, you have someone who has the ability. Put it into the curriculum of your vision for your child that they should speak. If they can't speak it, at least they should understand it. Because... You know, it will develop within them a character which you won't be able to give them, but the language will bring to you. And Allah chose the Arabic language to be a vessel for His laws, so no doubt it's going to be good for your for for, for your child in in ways that you can't imagine. It's going to develop them in ways that perhaps you won't be able to uh, develop them through your means and abilities. And Allah Subhanahu wa Taala knows lessons, many lessons that I have, but inshallah I've shared the most pertinent uh, for 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 this particular. Uh, lesson um, uh, very quickly I have a quote here of Ibn Taymiyyah uh, he extracts um, uh, a lesson pertaining to uh, how we name our children and he says if you notice the name of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam was Muhammad and his mother's name was Amina and his uh, midwife's uh, name was Shifa and his carer was called Baraka and his foster mother there was Thuwaybah which means merit and reward and Halima which means gentle and soft so Ibn Taymiyyah, and we talk about environments and how, you know, um, um, how, how we develop as a result of our, our environments. Ibn Taymiyyah says, he goes, look at the Prophet Sallallahu qualities and look at the people around him when he was young. Muhammad, the most praised one. He lived in a praiseworthy way. His mother was Amina, she was trustworthy. He was known as the trustworthy one. Even after he did this da'wah, the Quraysh who hated him used to leave them their property when they used to travel. When he went for the hijrah, he had people's belongings, had to leave it with Ali. He had to leave Muslims behind to give people back the amana, right? So his mother's name was Amina, he had trust in him. His midwife's name was Shifa, and the Prophet ﷺ was a cure to hearts that were sick with ignorance of shirk and polytheism, right? His carer was Barakah, and he was Barakah, he was blessed. Look at what he brought to the life of Halima radiallahu anha, and what he brought to our lives. His foster mother first was Thuwayba, and Thuwayba means merit and reward. And he brought to us the concept of being rewarded and merit and jannah. He was the means of that. And then halima, which means soft and gentle. And Allah says in the Quran about him, Indeed, 
the, the messenger to the believers is soft and gentle and merciful. Jazakumullah khairan, everything corrected is from Allah alone and He's perfect and any mistakes are from myself and Shaytan and I seek Allah's forgiveness. We'll see you tomorrow inshallah. We ask Allah to preserve us in His obedience. I think we have a morning trip to see the places in Mecca. We will be told about that shortly. Wa sallallahu wa sallam wa barak ala nabiyyina Muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi ajma'in.